We are studying in the book of James, the epistle of James in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 13 is where we are brief, have briefly started and stopped. And we are in the process of exploring the meaning of one particular phrase. Well, we're not down to verse 13, we're at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under testing. So the subject at hand has been testing. One of the greatest areas of testing that we all face is people testing in the area of relationships. There's all categories of relationships that we face. Relationships with uh, hus- between husbands and wives, parents and children, uh, employees, employers, with other employees, with just people in general, a variety of relationships which provide a vast array of tests for us. So blessed is a man who perseveres or endures while being tested, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We, are, we began by exploring the doctrine of personal love for God the Father. So many people think they know what it means to love God or to love the Lord. And yet they base that on emotion, they base it on feeling, they base it, base it on subjective impressions. And yet that is not what the Bible means by love. You cannot love who you do not know. If you know nothing about God, you cannot love God. Because as we saw in 1 John chapter 4, one of the greatest difficulties with loving God is that we can neither see Him, feel Him, or experience Him empirically. The only way we can know God is through His Word. And so we are motivated to know God through the study of doctrine, and the doctrine in your soul is the only basis for loving God. If you know very little about God, you cannot love Him. (coughs) And as I have studied this, and the more I delve into this entire subject, the more I realize that this is one of the most important tools or skills that we can develop for handling stress. We have seen that adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity, the big A or P here on the overhead, adversity or prosperity is the outside pressure on the soul of the believer. Here is your soul in this circle. This is the real you, the immaterial part which is composed of your mentality, emotion, volition, conscience, and self-consciousness. You can absorb this outside adversity into your soul where it becomes stress. This is because your volition has decided to try to handle the outside pressure of adversity or testing through your own resources. Or you can apply the Word of God, and by applying the Word of God, you erect a fortress which protects your soul. The doorway or entry point into this is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This provides the filling of the Spirit. So the gateway is the first stress buster, number one. Number two is the power, first power option of the spiritual life, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual life of the church-age believer is unique in the entire history of mankind. You and I have been given the most incredible spiritual life of anyone at any time and the most advanced resources 
available to any human being. We have uh, the, the personal indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, and His personal filling. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have a vast array of spiritual assets unique to us. We have our own priesthood, which gives us immediate access to God the Father. All of this and much more is ours in the church age, unique to all of history. So we have the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is the first power option. The third uh, stress buster is the faith rest drill. The fourth is doctrinal orientation, or excuse me, the fourth is grace orientation, and the fifth is doctrinal orientation. These are the basic elements to spiritual growth. Those who are in spiritual infancy and spiritual childhood must master these five stress busters, these five spiritual skills, in order to advance anywhere in the spiritual life. These provide the tools and the building blocks for spiritual adulthood. Before you can get beyond this, you have to master each one of these. Faith rest drill is the sort of the glue. If you were building a wall, it would be the mortar between the bricks. The bricks and the analogy would be each different stress buster. The faith rest drill is the mortar that holds this fortress together. You have grace orientation and doctrinal orientation must be mastered before you can advance any further into the more uh, complex or more sophisticated stress busters which become part of the advanced uh, adult spiritual life as you pursue spiritual maturity. As you go past this uh, stage number five, you come into sixth stress buster, which is uh, a personal sense of your eternal destiny. At this point, after a certain amount of gr- understanding of grace and doctrine, you begin to realize that you are not living for time, but you are beginning to live for eternity. You are beginning to put your emphasis on living for God for eternity and not for today. Matthew 6:19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. So at this point, you begin to understand that your life here on earth is not as significant as your eternity in heaven and you are preparing for that. And then you move from this into what we would call a triplex of Stress busters. Number seven, eight, and nine. Number seven is personal love for God. Personal love for God is the foundation and building block for the, for eight and nine. Eight is impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind and nine is occupation with Christ. This is the foundation that must be mastered to move into the most advanced stress buster, and that is inner happiness. This is the basic command that James is writing to us about. In James 1, uh, 1, 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The rest of this epistle is written to help us understand how to do that. And we do that through developing our spiritual growth through these basic tools. Now, we learn about these tools from all of Scripture 
taking all of Scripture and comparing Scripture line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, comparing this Scripture with that Scripture, we learn and extrapolate certain concepts, certain skills and dynamics uh, from the Scripture and then boil it down into these ten stress busters, which are spiritual skills for the advancement in the spiritual life. So personal love for God provides the motivation for advancement and the foundation for going into that higher level of the spiritual life, spiritual adulthood. It's point number two in terms of introduction. It's the foundation for impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and inner happiness. Point number three in terms of review. Personal love for God the Father we have seen is mandated of every believer... This is not an option. This is a must. It's mandated for every believer, and it is intrinsically linked to the concept of, or the doctrine of, impersonal love for all mankind. You can't get here to the mandates for impersonal love. Remember, Jesus said, by your love, people will know that you are my disciples. He's talking about impersonal love. He's not talking about some feeling that is generated towards other people. See, too many people, especially in our culture today, put all the emphasis on feeling and subjectivity. Whether you get that warm glow or warm fuzzies, and as long as you're getting that, then it must be good. But that's not scriptural, it's not even good sense. And it always leads to problems and collapse, especially when it comes in anything complex like a relationship. So if you're going to go anywhere in life, as a believer, you have to master personal love for God to get to impersonal love for all mankind. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. A new mandate, you must love one another. I want to emphasize this when it's an imperative. Let's put the word must in there because this is not expressed as an option. It's expressed to our volition to obey or disobey. A new mandate I give to you, that, that you must love one another even as I have loved you. Note, the model, the standard, the example for loving one another is laid down by Jesus Christ in His life and His work on the cross. We are to love one another in the same way that Jesus Christ loved us. Now, if we don't understand the dynamics of what took place on the cross, the dynamics of soteriology, the theology, the doctrines that relate to salvation... If we don't understand that, then we cannot learn to love one another. We have to start with understanding the dynamics of what happened at the cross. You love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The greatest level of testimony that you can have to men and to the angels is carried on in this arena between problem-solving devices 7, 8, and 9. Personal love for God, which is the motivation and basis for impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. By focusing on Christ, we learn what it means to have that kind of love that Christ had for us. John 15:12, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Once again, we see this this standard is the work of Christ on the cross in John 15:12 and 13. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. 
So we see that one of the most important elements is a selflessness, an absence of self-absorption that is critical if we are going to advance in true impersonal love. So the principle here is that impersonal love elevates the object of love over personal needs. Whenever you say, I love you, you have the person who loves the subject of the phrase and the person who is loved the direct object of the phrase. So the person who loves in impersonal love elevates the object of love over personal needs. Therefore, it is completely antithetical to all forms of arrogance. Arrogance must be driven out of our soul before we can advance into this level of love. To to the degree that arrogance is dominating our thinking, to that degree we are limited in moving forward in terms of personal love for God, impersonal love for mankind, and occupation with Christ. The arrogant skills of self-absorption, self-justification, and self-deception are excluded. What are these three arrogant skills? They work together. First of all, there is self-justification. Or, excuse me, there is self-absorption. We begin to focus on ourselves. Then, because of our self-centeredness, we begin to justify our behavior. Of course we're right. The other person's wrong. We move into the whole realm of self-justification to prove to ourselves that we're the ones who have indeed been hurt. We're the ones who have been harmed. We're the ones who have been mistreated. So, of course, we have the right to act the way we're doing. And that causes us to move into the third skill, which is self-deception. We get into self-justification, we begin to deny reality as it truly is, and we begin to deceive ourselves. And this develops further into more self-absorption, and we get into a wicked cycle of arrogance, building one of these skills, developing into the next. So those are the three arrogant skills. Those must be completely wiped out in our thinking before we can advance very far into this uh, triplex of love, the personal love for God, impersonal love for mankind, and occupation with Christ. First Peter five five says that God is opposed to the arrogant, but He gives grace to the humble. So that's part humility is part of grace orientation. As we are grace oriented, grace oriented, God the Father deals with us because of humility that is developed there. First Peter five six says, "Humble yourselves, therefore, or you must develop." Genuine humility. Let's paraphrase it that way. You must develop genuine humility. How do you do that? You do that by learning doctrine, letting it saturate your soul, assimilate it into your thinking, and begin to face reality as it is under the authority of God. So there's a relationship between true and genuine humility and authority orientation as it relates to God and as it relates to all secular authority. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. The issue is not self-exaltation. This is going to, we're going to come right back to this a little later on. The key here is if you want to have glory, if you want to exalt yourself, if you want to be elevated to any position in, 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 as far as God is concerned of, of exaltation or glory, 
then the key is humility. Now, humility does not mean being a doormat. Humility means recognizing who and what you are in all reality and living within the framework of your position and role in the family of God. One of the most humble men of all of history was Moses. Moses was the leader of a tremendous nation, and Moses exercised, had confidence, boldness, and exercised his authority. Yet the Scripture says that he was the most meek of all men. So humility has to do with recognizing your proper place and role in the plan of God, and that's based upon an understanding of Bible doctrine. So we advance through the various stages of spiritual infancy and childhood by passing a series of tests. These tests are brought into our lives by God, we have seen, in order to give us the opportunity to apply the doctrine that's in our soul. James 1.3 says that we are able to count it all joy because we know something. We know that the testing of our faith, the testing of the doctrine in our soul, produces endurance. So as these tests intensify into advanced forms of testing, people testing, system testing, and momentum testing, these are designed to eradicate the arrogant skills from our soul. We can only advance into the into spiritual adulthood by developing true and genuine humility, which is related to grace orientation, and by getting rid of arrogance in our soul. Point number four in terms of our introduction and review, we saw last week that love for God, personal love for God, has two aspects as emphasized and described in the Scriptures. First of all, there is enduring devotion. This we have seen in the mandate given in Matthew 22:37 from the Lord. And the Lord said to him, in summarizing the law, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is enduring devotion. We'll call that one category. This is the aggressive side of love. It is our aggression. There is something positive and directive there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The other side of our love for God deals with the area of what the Bible calls fear or respect. Fear or respect. This is the responding side of our love for God. Love has two sides, an aggressive initiating side and a responsive side. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So love for God has two areas, enduring devotion and fear and respect. And what we're going to do tonight is begin to develop exactly what these mean and how that relates not only to personal love for God, but to impersonal love for all mankind and how these categories lay the foundation for all our relationships. This is going to set up a lot of what we're going to discuss in the rest of James 1 and really culminate in what what is covered in James 2.8 as the royal law of God. So that leads us to point five, that these two aspects, enduring devotion and fear and respect, these two aspects are united in our personal love for God. 
There are two elements that work together in our personal love for God. In terms of human relationships, especially in marriage, they're separated. They're distinguished in terms of human marriage. There's a distinction made between enduring devotion and aggressive love on the one hand and responding love, which is respect or fear, on the other hand. And we see this in Ephesians 5.33. Let's turn there. We're going to spend some time moving from Scripture to Scripture, so have your Bibles handy. because It's important for us to understand what these Scriptures are saying and why they are saying them. And I want you to see the arguments that are presented here. Ephesians 5.33 is a concluding verse in a section that begins back in verse 22. You'll be very familiar with all of these verses before we get very far along. Nevertheless, this is sort of a conclusion. Let each individual, and there it's referring to each individual husband. So men, husbands, this is talking to you. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife as himself. This is talking about this category of Love, enduring devotion, the aggressive side. Let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. Let's paraphrase this just a little bit to get the nuances of the verbs and the imperatival force of the verbs. Nevertheless, each husband must love his own wife as himself. Notice there's not a framework there for an option. Each husband must love his wife as himself, and each wife must respect her husband. So there we pick up these two ideas of love separated and distinguished in the Christian institution of marriage. Now, we haven't had a lot of time to go through a lot of background on marriage, but just to summarize... In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam first and then the woman. The woman was initially called Isha, Ish for the man and Isha for the woman in Hebrew. And then after the fall, she was named Eve. Adam and the woman were created in the Garden where they had perfect, a perfect marriage. There was no sin. The marriage did not keep them from sinning. Marriage is not a problem-solving device. Their marriage did not prevent the fall. They had a perfect union. They had a perfect marriage. They had a perfect sex life, none of which prevented sin. So from that we conclude that marriage and sex are not problem-solving devices. They're created in the garden, and there's a test, and then there is the fall. The fall, marked by sin, plunges the entire human race into sin, and there are, and one of the casualties is their marriage. Their marriage is a, has failed spiritually in terms of the angelic conflict. Their marriage is the second divine institution. God instituted, uh, there are five institutions for all of society that God has established in the early part of Genesis. The first I call human responsibility. Human responsibility. Within this system, there is an authority, and that is individual volition. 
Every person is responsible for the decisions they make. There is no such thing as insanity as a plea against responsibility because no one is born insane unless there is some sort of serious physical problem. Insanity is the result of a series of bad decisions. So when somebody makes a, makes a plea in a court of law that they did whatever it was they did because they were insane, it should be no excuse. In fact, what it shows is that they have made so many bad decisions that they should be removed like a cancer from human society. And that's why God instituted, after Noah's flood, capital punishment and delegated that to human authority, knowing that human authority was flawed because of sin. But nevertheless, he delegated that responsibility to man in order for society to be protected and have an orderly function of society. So the first divine institution is human responsibility and individual volition is the authority. The second divine institution is marriage. Marriage was instituted in the Garden of Eden before sin ever cast its shadow on the human race. That means that marriage is not a response to a sinful environment. Marriage is not some problem solution. Marriage was designed for perfect environment and existed in perfect environment before there was sin. The third divine institution was family. These divine institutions are designed for the perpetuation and protection of the human race. Marriage, family, the fourth is human government. Human government was established in God's covenant with Noah after the flood when God delegated the responsibility for capital punishment and and a judiciary system. The fifth divine institution occurred at the Tower of Babel when God split man up according to languages and this would be the institution of national diversity. Some of you have probably not seen those last two split up that way before, but they are separated by some two or three hundred years in time, so they must be distinct divine institutions and not seen as the same. Human government is one and national distinctions another. There is no such thing as, uh, in God's plan for the human race, as internationalism. There's no such thing as globalism, one-worldism. All of those are products of Satan's influence on humanity trying to achieve his goals and his plans for humanity rather than God's. But that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about now. We're focusing on really these first three and the impact of personal love for God and impersonal love for mankind on having a successful marriage. Now, these are for all humanity. Let me put that up here. For all humanity. Believer and unbeliever alike. Divine institutions were established by God for the perpetuation and preservation of mankind and to protect man from his own sin nature. It's for everybody, believer and unbeliever alike. In seminary, it was always one of those tests. What would you do as a pastor if some couple came in to uh, ask you to marry them and they were unbelievers? And you always find these guys who are saying, well, you know, I'm a pastor and it's not my job to to, uh, marry unbelievers and I don't know that I would do it. And they totally miss the point that marriage is for everybody, whether you're a believer or not. Now, if one's a believer and one's not, then you have to witness to them. You should witness to them if they're both unbelievers. But if one's a believer and one's not, then other issues come into play because no 
believer should be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. See, the issue is very simple. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Once you put your faith in Christ, then you have a new birth. So you have one person who is body, soul, and spirit, and they have a relationship. They have a human spirit, and they have a relationship with God. They have a spiritual life. But then the other person is not a believer. They have a human body, and they have a human soul. But they do not have a human spirit. They are spiritually dead and separated from God for all eternity. And until they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So a person who just has a soul and a body cannot have a tremendous, any kind of deep rapport or fellowship with someone who is a member of the royal family of God and who will spend eternity with God the Father in heaven. So they are, the Bible says, warns, do not be unequally yoked, believer with unbeliever, for what fellowship has light with darkness? So if you are a believer, you should never even date unbelievers. One of the worst things that you can do if you're single and a believer is start getting involved with unbelievers because you never know where your emotions will go. And I remember when I was growing up, my mother really drilled this into me. I couldn't even have a friend when I was growing up unless they were a believer. I would come home and I'd say, well, I met so-and-so at school today and I'm going to go over and play at so-and-so's house. And my mother would say, well, are they a believer? So I'd have to go over and witness to them. And, you know, that really paid off. Years later, one of my best friends growing up, um, we've been friends since we were in the second grade. And my mother asked me that question, so I went over and I witnessed to him. And when we were in, I must have been about 30, and I hadn't seen him for several years, and he had gone through some rough times. And one day, out of the blue, he called me up and wanted to go out to, well, I don't know if they have Renaissance festivals up here or not, but wanted to go to a Renaissance festival. That's one of those medieval things with Henry VIII and all this eating turkey legs. And I really didn't want to go, but, but I hadn't seen him in a long time, and, and so I went with him. And we spent the day together, and on the way home he said, all, out of the blue, he finally worked it up. He said, how do I know if I'm going to heaven? I said, well, I know you're going to heaven because way back when we were seven years old, I explained the gospel to you and you said you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So you never know how these things are going to play out in life. And so my mother was always, always emphasized that. And any time that I came home in high school and said, well, I was going to go out on a date and ask some girl out, my mother would say, are they a believer? Well, I don't know, so then I'd have to go witness. But it really drove the point home. And I was amazed when I pastored my first church down in Lamarck, Texas, how many people in that church had children who did not weren't involved at all in church, lived right down the street, but they had married an unbeliever. Nobody ever drilled that point in. The parents didn't drill that point in. But as parents, you need to drill that into your kids. You need to exemplify that for your kids. Because they do not, one of the greatest tragedies in life is when a believer and an unbeliever get married. They have nothing in common in the spiritual realm, and he's in the midst of, or she is in the midst of the angelic conflict, and the other person isn't. And spiritual warfare is raging around one and not around the other, and there's just a dynamic there that's missing, and I just can't understand 
how people can do that. But you have, we're getting far afield here, marriage is established for all humanity, believer and unbeliever alike. But something changed in the New Testament. All of a sudden you see some new dynamics, some new stipulations, some new mandates introduced here in Ephesians chapter 5 and in Colossians chapter 3, some new mandates which show that for the believer there is now a Christian institution of marriage. A Christian institution of marriage which is specifically related to the angelic conflict. Because you see, there was not only individual failure in the Garden of Eden, there was the corporate failure. There was the failure of the marriage to fulfill the proper roles God had designed in terms of the leadership of the man over the woman. And the result was that not only did they fail as individuals, but the marriage failed. So in the New Testament, in the church age, Christian marriage... Uh, marriage becomes a Christian institution when two believers are involved and they have a unique role to play as witnesses in spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict. And so in order to fulfill that role, they have to understand the principles laid out in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. So the two aspects of love for God, the two aspects of enduring devotion and fear and respect are united together in personal love for God, but they are separated under different categories, one for the man primarily and one for the wife primarily in Christian marriage. Point number six. We're still in by way of introduction. Point number six. The eternal example of this is the cross. The cross exemplifies for us what God means by love. Don't come to the Bible with some sort of independent, autonomous concept of what love is. All kinds of cultures come up with all sorts of definitions of what love is. Some people love is some, just physical. It's just sexual. It's the Greek concept of eros, which was one Greek word for love. There are other concepts of love, but let the Bible define what love is, and it defines it always in terms of what happened at the cross when Jesus Christ died as our substitute and paid the penalty for the sins of the world. Notice what it says in verse 23 of Ephesians 5. For the husband is the... uh, Excuse me, verse verse 25, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what becomes the model for love? It's what Christ did on the cross. So we look at this over and over again. When love is mandated, Jesus says, you are to love one another even as I have loved you. When it comes to the specific commands to the husband, the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So these characteristics that we have outlined here, starting with uh, enduring devotion, ED here, and respect, have to be defined. There are specific characteristics related to each in terms of one as aggressive love and one as responding love. When God created the man and the woman, He created the man with a soul that was designed to be the initiator 
the aggressive one. When God created the woman, He created her soul as a responding soul. The woman is the responder, the man is the initiator. So let's understand these characteristics. Enduring devotion. And let's start off by defining the term. What is enduring devotion? Means to give or devoted means to give or apply one's time, attention, and self entirely to a particular activity, cause, or person. Okay, when you're devoted to something, it means that you give or apply your time, attention, and self entirely to a particular activity, cause, or person. In the case of God's love for the world, for God so loved the world that He gave His uniquely born Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In that case, the activity of love is the incarnation and the crucifixion. The cause is the salvation of the world and the person is every individual. So God was devoted to a particular activity, the incarnation and crucifixion, to a particular cause, the salvation of the world, and to every single individual person in the world. What then is, are the characteristics of enduring devotion? First of all, it is initiating. Initiating. In eternity past, God the Father initiated the plan of salvation. In God's omniscience, He know, knows all the knowable. There's nothing that God doesn't know. So God knew in eternity past that when He created creatures with a free will that they would choose against Him. He knew that He had a choice. He could create with a free will or without a free will. Minus. Plus free will or minus free will. If they didn't have free will, then they would just be robots. They would be automatons. They would just do what He said and there would be no response No free love. In fact, there wouldn't be love. A machine cannot love. There would be nothing more than a computer. God wanted creatures who would choose freely to love Him, so He had to create them with free will. Knowing that they would have free will, He knew that inevitably they would choose against Him and they would lose their perfect righteousness and God's rapport with them would be broken and they would be minus R. So He made a plan to restore plus R to them. A solution. You see, this answers the whole problem of sin and evil. The unbeliever will often ask you when you're witnessing to them, how could a good God create a world with all this suffering? How could a good God create a world with with evil in it? And this explains it. That as a good God, He has the option of either free will or not free will. If He doesn't have free will, then there's no real creature. There's no independence. There's no volition. There's no personal responsibility. If they have free will, He knew that they would inevitably and eventually choose against Him and bring in all of the consequences that would come with sin and evil. But God didn't just leave it there. That's the point. He has provided the eternal solution, and it begins at the cross, the problem. The promise of that solution was given at the Garden of Eden. It was accomplished at the cross. And it will culminate at the great white throne judgment. There is personal responsibility and that's the issue. And God initiated the plan in eternity past, billions of millennia ago, in eternity past when there was no time in the eternity of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit laid out a plan that would solve the 
the human dilemma of sin and provide the perfect solution. So God initiated. He took charge in providing the solution necessary to restore the relationship broken by Adam's original sin. Second characteristic, it is aggressive. Aggressive means that Aggressive means that it asserts itself with confidence and boldness. Because of omniscience, God knows the entire problem, and with understanding, He takes every step necessary to resolve the problem. See, aggressiveness, aggression, is based upon confidence and boldness, and confidence and boldness are based on knowledge. Too often people think that someone who is very confident and asserts that he, he knows something and is very bold is, is arrogant. But there's a difference between arrogance, which is based on ignorance, and true confidence and boldness, which is based on knowledge of the truth. Jesus is very confident when he says, I am the only way to God. That's not arrogance. It's confidence based on his absolute knowledge of the truth. So because of omniscience, God knows the entire problem, and he is aggressive in solving the problem by sending his son to die on the cross as a solution to sin. Third characteristic is humility. Genuine humility. Genuine humility is not self-denigration. Running yourself down, being a, a sort of a, a uh, doormat for people. True humility is recognizing your role and place in the plan and purpose of God. True humility is not seeking your own personal glory, but taking on the attitude of a servant to do whatever is necessary to accomplish the task. That's what Jesus did in, his, in the incarnation and crucifixion. Rather than seeking his own personal glory, he became a servant. Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, even though he had every right to be because he's the creator of everything. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So humility, the entire concept of being a servant to accomplish the goal. Fourth characteristic, intensity. There is an intensity to enduring devotion. Intensity is defined as a strong and overwhelming desire to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles. A strong and overwhelming desire to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles. The goal for Christ was salvation. Whatever obstacles Satan threw up in his way, he was going to overcome. He had an intense love for humanity. So that he would bear whatever pain and punishment was necessary on the cross in order to accomplish the goal of salvation. Fifth, steadfast loyalty. There is a loyalty to the object of love. God is loyal to man in accomplishing what he promises to man. He is faithful. And he strongly desires all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God does not reject and condemn man at the moment of sin, but provides the solution, and God is always loyal and faithful to His promises. And sixth, 
consecration. Consecration means to set yourself apart to a task, to be set apart, to be distinct. This is related to the idea of holiness, which is an antiquated English word, which is based on the Hebrew word kadosh and the Greek word hagias, which have the basic meaning of being set apart to a purpose. Jesus Christ, from eternity past, is solemnly set apart to the task of accomplishing our salvation. And then finally, dedication. Dedication. Jesus Christ committed himself from eternity past to eternity past to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification. He's committed to the task. So these words define enduring devotion. It's initiating, it's aggressive, it has true humility, intensity, steadfast loyalty, consecration, and dedication. As aggressive love, there is a response to that. There is a response and corresponding results under the category of respect. Remember that we are commanded to fear God. This is the responding aspect on our part toward God. We saw last time in our study of fear and respect in all the Old Testament passages that the idea here is that this is an attitude of awe and respect that drives us towards obedience. The more, in the human realm, the more you come to respect someone who is a leader, someone who is perhaps your boss, someone who is in a position of authority over you, the more you come to respect and admire them, it drives you towards greater obedience to them and a higher level of performance because you don't want to disappoint them. The more they, you see their dedication and their excellence in whatever field it may be, the more you are driven to do, give your best so that you do not disappoint them. That is the essence of awe and respect. The greater our respect for God, the less we are willing to disappoint God. And the only way we develop respect for God is we learn His Word and all that He has done for us. So what are the characteristics? First of all, it is responding. This is this fear and awe is a responding love. It is initiation. God initiates. We respond. That's, that's the corresponding aspect on our part. It's based on a continuous understanding and a deep, deepening understanding of all that God has done for us, both in terms of our salvation and spiritual life. The more we know, the more we respond. Secondly, there is deference. Deference. This means we submit to His judgment, to His, uh, the revelation of His will in terms of divine viewpoint, and to the mandates of Scripture. When there is conflict between our thinking and God's thinking, we defer to Him. We submit to His judgment. Third, there is admiration. We come to know what Christ has done for us. We become awed by the complexity 
and the wonder of God's magnificent plan. We admire Him more and more because of all that He has done and accomplished on our behalf. Fourth, honor. In response to His humility, we admire Him and we honor Him. We seek to bestow glory on God who has performed so much on our behalf. Fourth characteristic is honor. The fifth is esteem. Esteem is defined as elevating God to a high level of prestige and priority in our life. He becomes the priority in our life. We begin to change the way we do things, how we spend our time, uh, where we spend our money, how we use our talents. We begin to transform them so that that the priority becomes God and we are going to uh, we esteem Him so highly that we are going to use our time, our talents, and our treasure on His behalf. We elevate God to a high level of prestige and priority. Fifth, or sixth, consideration. We give Him first consideration in all that we do. Consideration includes the ideas of careful, thoughtful concern and deliberation based on God's desires for our, our lives. Careful, thoughtful concern and deliberation based upon God's desires for our lives. This is what the Bible means by meditation. Meditation means that you don't just think about doctrine when you come to Bible class. Hopefully you think about doctrine when you come to Bible class. It isn't just when you come to Bible class, but when you, when you go home, when you're driving places, uh, when you're at home, you take time to study, reflect over your notes. How do these things apply to me? It's not just a matter of just sitting here in Bible class once a week or twice a week, three times a week, whenever. But it's focusing, thinking, letting these, these ideas and doctrines sift through your mind, renovating your thinking. Consideration and seventh, partiality. Partiality. This is the idea that you are partial to God. It indicates a special fondness or bias in favor of the object of personal love. Therefore, God's plan is always given preference in our lives. We are partial to God. Now, this breaks down these two categories of the aggression and response and respect. Now, think about these in terms of your relationship with your spouse. If you are a man, you need to think about your love for your wife in terms of these characteristics. Initiating aggressive, uh, humble, genuine humility, intensity, steadfast loyalty, consecration set apart to them alone, and dedicated to that task of loving them. If you are a wife, your love is responding. includes deference, admiration, honor, esteem, consideration, and partiality. Now, because this comes under the category of impersonal love, it also relates to our personal love for God, but we're talking about these characteristics as part of impersonal love because they are exemplified by Christ's love for us at the cross. Because they are part of impersonal love, we know that they are not conditional. In other words, the husband has no right whatsoever to say, 
well, I'm not going to do these things because she's none of these. Once she gets her act together, then I'll do this. You can't think that way. That's not impersonal love. That's conditional love. You're saying, you do this, then I'll love you. That's not impersonal love. That's your thinking. You're totally wrong. You'll never get there. On the other hand, the wives. This is always tough. I think the responder has more difficulty than the initiator. But the wife has no right to ever say, well, I'm not going to show him deference, admiration, honor, esteem, consideration, or partiality because he doesn't do any of these other things and the guy's just a real loser. You can't say that. Jesus doesn't say that to us. He never says, well, you're, you're a sinner, so I'm not going to initiate. The issue is never a conditional quality. It's unconditional. It's impersonal. It's based on the character It's based on who and what Christ did for us on the cross, not on the basis of somebody's behavior, activity, failures, or flaws. God doesn't give us a way out. Husbands, there's no way out. This is what God expects of you. Ladies, there's no way out. Wives, this is exactly what God expects of you. It doesn't matter what that man does or doesn't do. This is what is expected of each one of us in those relationships. Let's look at some further characteristics. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. I'm not going to exegete the passage. I just want to remind you of what the Scriptures say in definition of impersonal love. Beginning in verse 4, notice the qualities. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now, this applies to all relationships, not just those that are uh, in the home, in the family, at the workplace. All relationships, whether you know the people or you don't know the people. The people that you're standing in line with when you're at the post office and you have to get somewhere 10 minutes ago. The people who are driving 25 miles an hour in front of you on the country road when you're 20 minutes late for an appointment. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. The point here is it's not self-absorbed. It's an absence of arrogance. And this first verse emphasizes this absence of arrogance. No self-absorption. Jealousy is self-absorption. Impatience is self-absorption. Bragging is self-absorption. No self-absorption. True impersonal love is the opposite of arrogance. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Love does not act unseemly or unbecomingly. There is a proper decorum in love. It does not seek its own and is not provoked. Not only is there an absence of self-absorption or arrogance there, but it is not easily provoked. Anger is often the result of self-absorption. Why do you get angry? Because you're not getting your way. So you get angry. When there is no self-absorption, then your love does not get provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. That means if it's not self-absorbed, it's not going to be vindictive or revenge-seeking. How often we see people become petty 
when they don't get their way in a relationship and then they hold it against the other person in some form of vindictiveness or trying to seek revenge. I'm going to hold out and hold this against you until you make it up to me. That's not unconditional love. That's conditional love. And it will destroy a marriage. It will not build a marriage. 1 Corinthians 13.6 Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There is integrity in love. It rejoices with the truth. True love is built on integrity and virtue. That means as a human being with a sin nature, it cannot come from you and your own resources. It must be developed in you through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's why it's one of the first productions of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot produce this kind of love on our own. 1 Corinthians 13.7 It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And these emphasize the persistence and endurance of love and its almost omnipresence or ubiquity in every arena of the spiritual life. So these define for us the characteristics of impersonal love which must undergird any human relationship, especially marriage, if there is to be success. This is the love that is the basis for the dynamic roles of both husband and wife in Christian marriage. And since our time is about up, we'll stop here before we get into Ephesians 5, where we're going to discuss the mandate, the love mandate addressed to the husband in Christian marriage. And we're going to start with the Christian husband, although most of the passages in the Scriptures start with the wives first. I want to start with the husbands because they are the initiator in the relationship. So starting next week... We will look at how impersonal love is the foundation for personal love in a marriage, in Christian marriage, in the Christian institution of marriage. And then the next week, we will come back and look at how that relates to wives in Christian marriage. And then we'll just wrap up this part of our study on love. After that, get started in back in James, because we will come back to this subject of love again and again. The reason I've... Stepped back to give you a little overview. So we're going to cycle through many of these subjects again and again. And I want to make sure that we have a good foundation and understanding for these basic doctrines that are repeated throughout James. So that as we come to them each time, we can not only repeat what we've studied already, but we can begin to build and enhance our understanding of these doctrines. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word tonight for understanding this important subject of love. And it's so critical to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity that until we begin to understand the significance of love and all that is involved in it, until then and then only can we advance through spiritual maturity to spiritual adulthood and then ultimately to glorify You in the angelic conflict. So, Father, now as we close, we pray that you would help us to remember these things, that we would not go away from here as forgetful hearers, but that we would think diligently on this subject as the Holy Spirit reminds us of it so that we can apply it in our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.